Now, um, the question I had was that, that you're working with, with girls and women and you have experience, you know, working with, with men as well. And I'm curious, is there a difference in the way that you coach or is it, these are, these are athletes, these are players and it doesn't matter whether they're, they're girls or boys. Um, I think there is definitely a difference. I mean, I don't think it's as stated as people say, and especially as you get to the elite side of the game, when you're working with competitors, like the bread and butter is, is they want to win. And so mm. there's not much difference in terms of that. I think if you're working on a broader level, from my experience, girls are much more open to um, discussion. They want to understand why they're doing things. They want to be included in the process of, of discovering and, and, and working towards an objective. What I've seen or my experience with boys is they cannot really understand or have any interest in the outcome of the training session from your point of view as a coach. But if you make it compelling to them, you make it competitive, there's a winner and a loser, you're good most of the time. And obviously there are the differences in that and, and that's not 100% of the time. But I would say that's the broadest difference that I've seen is, is there's also an element in, in lots of group dynamics with girls where the best player will drop their level to meet the rest in the middle. Whereas the boys, if one player is better than everybody, they will enjoy being the best. And they're like the best boy will go and pick on the, the boy that's struggling the most and they'll ruthlessly keep going at them. Often it's working in a women's game. You have to be very clever with the best players to find a way to motivate them because they're very conscious of the, the social dynamics of the group in a way that you don't get with boys. Hmm. I mentioned before you, you having traveled the world and coached in a variety of different countries. Do you, have you experienced that? Well, he's an outsider. He's from a different country. Uh, I'm not sure we can trust him or, or buy into what he's saying. How do you, how do you overcome that? How do you assimilate into that culture so that there is that trust of Harry is coach. Harry is one of us. And uh, you know, we, we believe what he's telling us. I mean, a lot of the work I would say comes kind of off the field. It's not, um, it's not what you do on the field. It's about spending time with players, with staff, learning, asking questions. If you can find opportunities to, to do things or allow them to show you their, their environment, their culture. That's a, a really key one for me. I mean, that improves the process. You, you build up those connections. I feel like anywhere you are in the world, as long as you are able to, to listen to people and be empathetic, that, that's a huge start. Um, I think on the field, anywhere you go, people don't particularly want to know about where you've come from. I mean, if you go in there saying, I'm from England and this is how we do things, that doesn't work very well at all. And I can tell you the first time when I, especially when I went to Mexico, I came in there with some very strong ideas about how I think things should be done. And I landed on my face pretty hard. Like I didn't, it was not the most pleasant experience with the other staff. And, and, and I learned very quickly that it's a process of guiding it. And maybe you know that there's a best practice or you think there's a way to refine but you have to be humble in a way that you do that. You have to build a relationship. And I think it's no different from working with staff or players. People like to be guided. They like to be part of the process of change. 
if it's forced upon them, clearly they're going to be defensive. Clearly they're going to, it's much easier to say this guy is the problem than say you, the person yourself, are the problem. And so, um, I mean, at times, working in, especially in developing nations, there are things that I, uh, I believe are just right and wrong. And, and there are things that I will just stand up for. I, I don't think they're acceptable um, and I'll deal with the consequences. But I feel like that's been a journey for me is knowing what is important and what's not important. Just because I think something's a good training exercise doesn't mean that everybody else has to think that. Or, or if I think that, uh, I mean, so I came through with the Curva method. And I think the Curva method, especially at the younger age groups, is the best method for teaching technique acquisition. And it's got so many fundamentals to it. It's equally futsal. I'm a huge advocate of futsal. But lots of places, they don't, they don't look at that. It's not interesting for them. So you have to find a way to, to listen and, and, and what works. Like where is the outcome that you guys are working towards and what's beneficial to fight for and what's something that's just, you're going to bang your head against the wall for hours and hours and you're going to get nowhere, basically. So uh, picking, picking your battles to some extent. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> okay. You talked about getting to know your players and I, I'm guessing staff as well. And, and one of the things that, that sometimes happens in these interviews is, is I hear information like that, but then, but then I don't necessarily know how you do that. And if somebody is maybe coming up as a coach, yes, they want to learn or get to know their players. Okay, so how does Coach Varley do it? What suggestions do you have? Or what strategies do you have beyond spending time with them? To, to really get to know your players and be able to, to find what makes them tick and be able to push them? Well, I guess, I mean, as I said, I'm working with a lot of, of kind of young trainee coaches at the moment. Um, and, and in the Caribbean, timekeeping is not, not one of the strengths. It's one mm -hmm. of the areas that we really have to like work on. Um, and what I'm talking to them about is, so our training session is from 3.30 until 5 o'clock. A lot of the time, the players are there from 2.45. They finish school at 2 o'clock. Some are even there from 2.15. That's an hour and a half, potentially, if not more, that you can sit with them. You can find out about their day. You start to find out about what their family situation is. If you've set up your training session in advance rather than turning up five minutes before, worried. Like For me, this is the, I cannot do that where I'm setting up a training session and I have players behind me. Mm -hmm. doing what they're doing because what i like to do is observe them sometimes it's not even about talking to them sometimes it's about observing them their dynamics in between them you'll hear conversations you start to hear the things that they're interested in working in in different countries like i do often before a training session i'll hear a phrase that i've never heard before there'll be a, a colloquial phrase and then i can go and ask them and say what does that mean mm -hmm. and then from there it you branch into a conversation you get more context um, and I think that also then works with your staff as well, watching the dynamics, how does staff treat me as a white male as to how they treat each other is, mm -hmm. is totally different. So if I wasn't paying attention, I could think that the way that I have a conversation with people here is the way that they talk to each other is, is totally different. And so I think it's, it's a bit of both. And, and I, I think more and more I saw... I mean, I give Cambodia. When I was in Cambodia, I lived 
in town and the, and the academy was, was 45 minutes an hour to travel to every day. And so I could, we had a morning training session and then we had an afternoon training session. I could go home to have my lunch and, and whatever at the time I was with my girlfriend. I mean, I could have spent that time isolating myself away. And I did initially, if I'm honest. But then I started to see I was missing out on the time when the boys were, were eating together, that time where they're connecting and you start to, to really delve into what their lives are like. And, and they also want that from you. Like if you are just the person that comes to a training session and then leaves, that's it. That's the, that's the sum total of the experience you'll get with them. If they see that you're willing to have a joke with them, be around with them, if you're interested in them, then, then that's when that starts to really develop. And then your coaching is only going to get better because then you're going to be able to watch body language. You'll be able to know the person better and you see, oh, today this training session is going to be a bit lively because this individual is coming with some baggage from their day. So I either need to make an intervention now or I have to think of some way to, to divert that energy before it affects the rest of the group. Mm. Coaching across multiple countries, I think you see a lot of different athletes, different skill levels. We talked about grassroots and, and of course, international level. What are some of the challenges that you experience as an international coach, knowing that, you know, you're picking a team, you're traveling, you're dealing with all of the, is this a, you're responsible for most of the administration while you're preparing and going to an event, or is it your responsibility is the, the 11 players on the pitch and you don't have to worry about other things? Well, I would say, Right now, Grenada is a unique experience and, and Cayman Islands was similar in the size of the population is very small. Mm -hmm. So although it's an international level, realistically, it feels more like a, like a small town club. And so um, say if I was on a team in, in Uganda or one of these bigger nations, then, then yes, all you're doing is you're going to observe games, you're going to, to pick the best players. It becomes a little bit more clinical in that sense. Um, here, because I'm involved in every aspect of football, I'm involved in if one of the national team players, their little sister is playing, then I'm getting to know them through their family. Like a big part of my role here is changing perceptions is, is there, and, and in, in general, especially with women's football in developing nations, there is often a stigma around it. There's, there's a lot of barriers towards it. It's not seen as a relevant thing for girls to do. It's seen as a distraction from, from other roles and responsibilities that they have. Um, I have to be out in a community here. I have to be like banging a drum and talking about scholarship opportunities talking about opportunities to coach, opportunities to, to be an, in, an administrator or to use football to, to develop skills. And, and, and so here, I would say the lines between being an international coach are, are, are blurred because it's much more comprehensive. But I think, yeah, if you're in a, in a bigger nation and you're working with a, a larger pool of players, I think there is an element where you have to be much more focused on on the group and, and, and purely football objectives um, because it's somebody else's responsibility to, to oversee what else is going on. Some of the students, I know that's not fair. Sometimes those interested in our, our academic coaching programs, you know, when I'm talking to them, I want to be a coach. 
Okay. Well, I see coach X, Y, and Z on TV and that looks fun and I want to do it and I'm going to make a lot of money doing it and I'm going to be famous and I'm going to be successful. And, you know, my, my responsibility is to put the brakes on that and say, okay, let's talk about the realities of coaching. Let's talk about some of the things you need to know before you think you're going to get there. And then the amount of work you're going to have to put in to get where you want to be. Not saying it's impossible, but let's, let's be realistic. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of coaching? Because there are a lot of people who just assume it's an easy job. You just throw out a ball and they play and they figure it out and you're good to go. But I think you and I both know that's not the case, but maybe share some of the challenges you've experienced as a coach. Well, I guess my what I would say on that on that topic is like if you just want to be a coach, it's not the hardest thing in the world. If you just want to go out and work with people and, and educate them in football and develop their skills, but you don't want to get paid, that's fine. <laughs> that's not that's not that difficult. If you're talking about being a professional coach, I think it comes down to being a professional in anything. Um, I would say after maybe between five and seven years of coaching, I started to feel very confident in my ability to to coach technique, to understand the tactics of the game, to organize a training session, to connect with players. I want that to does apologize the- there. I think it's important to note five to seven years, not a few months. This is a long term. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So I would say that was maybe I was around approaching 10,000 hours. uh, Yeah. 10,000 hours of coaching at that point when I felt confident in my ability to, to work at all levels. And, and, and I deliberately went about that as, as I said, I've worked with women's football. I've worked in futsal. I've worked in men's football. I've worked at grassroots level. I've worked at international level. I've done across the spectrum for that very reason, because I felt I wanted to know every component of what I was doing so that I could, I could be a good coach. I mean, it's, it's a long process that doesn't translate to money at all. So at that point I was like, well, I think I'm really good at what I do now. I know I can get better and I'm constantly learning. I'm, I'm listening to podcasts. I'm, I'm watching webinars. I'm, I'm researching any course that's available. I try to get on it. That isn't what gets you paid. And that was a big, I think on a personal level, I got very entrenched in the idea that somebody should recognize that I'm good at what I do. And nobody was like, no, there's no recognition. And I was seeing other people starting to get big roles. And, and I was, I was losing my head because I was like, I think I'm as good as that person, if not better, but I ain't going anywhere. Like I'm, I'm stuck. And it comes down to those soft skills, those, professional skills about how do you present yourself what environments are you are you putting yourself in to to get those connections i mean football i mean for example we just advertised a position for um an assistant coach in grenada here Mm. and there's been hundreds and hundreds of applicants i've been one of those applicants Having traveled around the world, my experience is most times you see a job advert, they're pretty certain they already know who they're putting in that job. So I've sent thousands of CVs off and never never got even a response from, from anyone. I understand you have to learn the hustle. You have to learn the game that you're in. I've been in contract negotiations where I thought the, the people that I was talking to 
would respect the work that I've put in and offer me remuneration equivalent to that. They don't. They're looking for the cheapest deal they can get. They're looking for you to, to be a mug. And so if you don't start to train yourself outside of, of football, and I would say from probably uh, since I was in Singapore is when I spoke to a coach there called Alex Weaver and he, he talked to me about managing upwards. And he said, like the once you get the the fundamentals of coaching, the of the grass work, the hard bit is now can you manage people that have more money than you, have a bigger ego than you, and can you convince them to one, pay you and and believe in and give you the time to do the job, and to buy into what you're saying is to try to get them to understand that you are an expert. Because what I've seen in every vi- environment in the world is as far as coaching has come very very few people have any respect for it like they lots of people when i tell them that i'm a football coach think oh wow that sounds like a lot of fun mm-hmm. like you're all over the world you're having fun and i'm like well yeah i am definitely and i'm very grateful for that but i'm also a very serious professional i put hours and hours of work into what i do and they won't buy it they're like they're not having it they, they don't they think that it's not like that and so if you're now speaking to, to multimillionaires and people who've run successful businesses and trying to say to them, I'm an expert, you need to believe in what I do and allow me to do the thing I want to do, that takes a lot of work. I mean, that's something that I'm still working on because it's, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. So this idea of coaching, yeah, I mean, you can put some, some balls and bibs and cones down on the floor. That's great. And I love that. But professional coaching, well, now you have to have all these other skills. And I would say as much as every time you read a book about football, you should also be reading a book about business or, or, or negotiation or personal yes. development, all of that stuff. Because if you can't do that, you're never going to get to the role as well. If you go into an interview and you can't convince the people, you don't even get to show them that you can coach because you're back at home. Yeah. You're preaching to the choir. You're you're 100% right. And uh, if you're watching, we're, we're talking with Coach Harry Barley. If you have a question for him, just put it in your chat box uh, wherever you're watching and we'll pass it along. It's, it's an interesting perspective and it's not something that coaches normally talk about, the leadership, the management, the business side of it. And it's something you've, you've obviously picked up and it's taken you a while as, as you intimated. When you, when you think about the coaching profession, a a lot of people, as as you suggested, don't really respect it because for a long time, coaching was seen as almost uh, something amateurs do. You do it for fun. What have you learned along the way, aside from this this focus on, on management, that would help new coaches, coaches who may be interested in, you know, moving up, improving themselves? Um, How do you what advice would you have for them? I would say the biggest thing that I've learned or the most important thing is, is having a clear idea what route in coaching you want to go because there are multiple. Um, I began in, in kind of the foundation phase, so I was working with 5 to 12-year-olds, and I love that. I mean, I honestly, you put me on a, out on the grass with that age group of kids they are the best kids in the world to, or the best age group in the world to work with. They, they love you as a coach already. They want to impress you. They, they're, they're just passionate to be there. But there's no money in that age group. 
Like there is no money and there's no status in it. So if you are happy to do that, then be the best you can be. And I hear lots of people talking about that. But you also have to be realistic about what you want to do with your life and, and whether you can provide for your family, et cetera, et cetera. There is also development coaching. So there's, there's different levels of coaching. So are you going to go to a program that is maybe not elite, but is having a huge impact on a community? I mean, I've worked in organizations uh, like Street League in the UK where they use football to help teach kids employment skills and get them into job opportunities. I mean, work like that for me is a huge passion. I mean, I, I firmly believe that football is such an amazing medium to connect young people into opportunities to change their lives. And, and it's part of the reason I travel around the world. It's part of the reason I select the, the places that I go. I also worked in a youth prison in, in New Zealand and the same thing using football there just to connect to kids who serious criminals at that age and, and boys with, with lots of social issues and, and lots of baggage, but you get them out on a field with a football and suddenly they become like five-year-olds again, everybody yeah. like it opens them up. And, and so is that what you want to do? Are you looking to find opportunities to, to use football for a, for a broader social platform or are you somebody that literally wants to, to go to the top and get those big bucks? And I would say if that is your route, the off-the-field stuff is even more important. I mean, people can talk about Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, these guys. They are politicians, if you ask me. They're incredible public speakers. They're able to, because of their charisma, because of the way they, they speak, create narratives that people pay them insane amounts of money when the reality is the impact you can make as a coach is about 5% on a team. At that level, you're making a very small impact, but they have the ability to convince and say that they are the main person in a room and they deserve this, this crazy amount of money. And so I think is the quicker you can find what your route is, the, the smoother that transition is going to be or the smoother your pathway is going to be, because there are lots of opportunities. I mean, I hear all the time how hard it is for people to find opportunities. I don't, I don't really buy that, if I'm honest. I think if you're really looking and you're doing the personal development work, there are opportunities all over. But lots of them are not in the right direction if, if you know what you're trying to do. So maybe that's where the difficulty comes in. Got a question from YouTube, somebody watching on YouTube, and they said, how important is it to have a coaching philosophy, but also be flexible in different contexts. So I, again, I would say if you'd asked me this five years ago, I would have said a coaching philosophy is the most important thing. Like that shows you are like a, a high level coach. And I think a lot of that comes from ego. I think a lot of what we do as coaches is we try to justify our role and, and justify our importance. And I think I've gone on a journey over this last kind of five, six years of understanding. And it goes back to when I was a player. I mean, most of the time when I was a player, I never listened to anything a coach said. Most of the time they're screaming and shouting from the sidelines. And as soon as you get on the field, you just ignore it and you'd work it out as a player. And I think what modern coaching should be and what our objective as coaches should be 
is to create a connection with our players and create a framework that they can be better decision makers on the field. So yes, a philosophy is important. It's good to know your stuff about football and it's good to know what you want to get out of it. But working with different teams are going to have different skill sets. If you go in there saying that you want to play Barcelona football and you have a bunch of guys that don't have the technique for it, they are going to lose faith in what you're talking about. And they're going to say, like, you're not really giving us the opportunity to show how good we are. And I think it's really, for me, working in, in especially Africa, where you have so many players that want to get out, they're desperate, they would do anything for it. The imperative on you is to give the conditions to allow them to do that in the best way. So if I take players and I say, well, for me, I think football should be played like this, that's somebody that their whole family is relying on. They are counting on that person to try and find an international opportunity so that they can send money home. You're, there's a massive impact. There's a much broader impact than them just sitting on the subs bench. They're not going from, from the subs bench home and they have a nice house and they have social, social security and these other things. They are, all the pressure's on them. And, and I think, yes, the philosophy is important. I think it, 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 especially as you're, you're starting out, to get your ideas and, and to, to just engage in, in learning and developing your knowledge is great. But I think there is definitely a point at which you have to understand that the players are the ones that make the decisions on the field. The amount of times that I've stood on a touchline with all the philosophy in my head and players are doing whatever they want. And, and like that is the, is, is humbling and, and you feel like totally sidelined at times. Mm-hmm. You have to, accept it i think i think as well it's it's important to clarify when we look at what is a coaching philosophy i think there's different interpretations of what that is and yeah, the interpretation that, that you give is you know the tactics the strategy the way you want to play whereas when i read that i was thinking of the way i want to coach having nothing to do with tactics and strategy yeah, but, yeah, yeah, sure. but how i want to be how i want to treat my athletes how i want them to interact with each other and things like that. So, so it's a, it's a really interesting question. We got another one for you as well. Um, Jim Douglas says, how do you discover the differences is in differences in your players? And then how do you treat them differently based on their differences? Or don't you? No, I mean, you definitely do. And I think that's the, that's the art of, of coaching. And it often comes down to the environment. It comes down to what are the, uh, the expectation, what are the the objectives of the team? I think as you get to a, a more win-at-all-cost level, um, then that becomes much more difficult. Then the allowance for difference is reduced. Um, and it's something that I often come back to. I think it's a very difficult question. I think right now you're seeing a lot of players coming out talking about mental health issues, and, and a lot of that comes back to that environment where they are – it's fear-based. Everything is around the fear of losing, the fear of, of not getting your contract renewed. Um, so maybe we'll leave that to the side because it's a, it's a bit of a branch-off conversation. I think in terms of, of difference in players, firstly, you have to establish um, whatever you can call them non-negotiables. I'm hearing lots of different standards. There has to be a, a, a minimum set of requirements for the players to function as a group. Um, and I, I think without that, 
you start to lose control of, of the direction. And, and you can often, if you have very dominant players, they can take over the group and it can impact massively. So there is definitely an element where there must be a collective um, association around some standards and, and some agreed upon principles. After that, I'm a huge, huge advocate of tailoring individual programs to individual players. Um, and again, it's something that I've really started to, to delve into in the last couple of years. I think there's a, a huge amount of wastage. There's a huge amount of inefficiency in football because past those basic standards that we need, there is an expectation that everybody should train in the same way, regardless of body type, regardless of mentality. Um, and I definitely say that I was guilty of that. Uh, I was somebody that my approach to football is like 100%. The harder we train, the, the more likely that is to, to result in performance on a weekend. And I've honestly been disavowed of that. I mean, there are guys that don't aren't good trainers. They don't like training. They don't want to be at training. And then they'll still win you the game on a weekend. And so you must manage the dynamics of the group around that. But it's also about we, we are here because we love football, because it's such an amazing sport. It's, it's got so many benefits to it. It shouldn't be that we punish our players for being who they are because we have a fixed concept of, of what everybody should be doing. Um, and so I'd say I don't have a definitive answer on that. And I think it's you have to be a very strong personality as a coach to allow some players to, to be doing some things and others, you have other expectations. I think the, the only progress I've seen in that direction or, or the, the way that I see it, my improvement is, is being honest, is being candid with players, connecting on them with on a one-on-one -on -one level, allowing them to tell you what they want, but then feeding back about the impact that that has and, and, and working it out as a group. I think the more that you can collaborate with your team, the less that you try to put yourself on a pedestal, because that comes back to that same thing that we talked about before. If I come into a place and, and say, this is how I should do things and, 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 then you become a target. Then you become the the person that they they blame and 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 want to to push away. It's the same if you put yourself on a pedestal as a coach and you say, "I know more than you. Everything should be done like this." Well, as soon as there's a discrepancy, as soon as you are not consistent, well, then players, especially the ones who are not in a team or the ones you don't have a hundred percent relationship, well, then they're going to start to say, "Well, this is not fair." Like you aren't backing up what you're saying. And then, and then that's when you'll, you'll come into troubles. So I think it's, it's about open, uh, open dialogue. It's about learning your players as a, as a process. Um, it takes time. I mean, uh, one of the biggest takeaways you can have from anything I say today is if you think you're going to get that in a month, you not, there's no chance. I've been here in Grenada for a year and a half now. Every day, I'm still learning about players. Every day, I learn something about the culture of the country. I learn something about the interdynamics of the, the players that I work with, about their families, about everything. And, and that just goes and goes and goes. Um, and it's the more you want to look into it, the more information you have to your disposal, I guess. Last question for me, unless anybody watching has a question. I, I, I'm surprised I've never asked this before, so I'm going to ask you. When it comes to captains, how do you choose a captain? 
uh, yeah, this is another one that. Um, don't just put you on the spot. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm flip flopping on it because I don't think it's important. I think it, there's mm. an element of when you appoint a captain, you dissolve others of responsibility. And so I, I would have said again five years ago, I would have chosen the player that I felt had the, the characteristics, maybe not on the field, but off the field, that best embodied the philosophy of the team and, and our objectives. Um, I believe now that that lets other players coast along and not engage. And so your captain ends up doing twice the work of everybody else, which is great for their personal development, but you are inefficient in terms of maximizing the potential of the players. And what's more important for me is, is them as people. And I think in any role that I'm in, whether I win or whether I lose, I mean, I believe by doing things in, in a, in a correct way, you're, you're going to win. I don't, I, I think it comes as a byproduct, but it's not the focus. If you're not getting personal growth out of your players, I don't think you're coaching in all honesty. I think you're, it's something else. It's something for yourself. I think we have to be there to say whatever is happening on the field, there must be at the end of my time in a role, a development of every individual in my team might be tiny. It might be just a very small thing. might be one thing in their life, but then I will say, well, I, I had an impact there. Uh, hey, you're popular, Harry. So I'm going to keep going with the questions because we got to no, know. I love it. I love it. Um, Russell says, at what age does results take priority over development and how can you coach through that transition? Great question. It is a really good question. Um, honestly, coming from my point of view, working a lot in youth football um, and transitioning that to, to senior football, I think the results never matter. They don't matter at all. Um, and I think if you look at the most successful models of um, talent development, then they are focused on bringing individuals from the youth teams into the senior team. And that's your, that's your result. So it's about changing the metrics. I think if you are working with competitive individuals, if you are doing your recruitment right, they want to win. I mean, I've never met kids at nine and 10 years old who don't want to win. I've never met. I, I, I keep hearing this, that we're making kids non-competitive and any training session I'm ever in, everybody's trying to cheat all the time because they want to win. <laughs> Part of my planning is how are they going to cheat and how do I stop them cheating? If, if it was, if there weren't competitive kids, they wouldn't be doing that. They would just play, but they always want to win and they'll find any way to do it, whether it's what I've set out for my training session or not. So I, I hear a lot in academies that at 15, you have to start making the results count. I don't buy it. I think that's fear in a coach. I think that's, that's coaches who are looking at their own reputation, looking at their own values. You might have a boy at 18. You might have a boy at 21 who isn't ready for that yet. They need time. They need belief. Um, and it, again, it's something that I'm, more and more interested in his mindset and and using mindset training with with individuals because we get caught up very easily in the x's and the o's and if you have a squad of 25 it's very easy to see them as components 
and I think you lose so many players through the through the system because of that, because we lose that human connection, because we lose that patience with them. And I think one of my favorite podcasts is um, Graham Hunter's big interview, um, and and he he interviews former players, current players, and almost always they talk about one person in their life, whether it's their mom, whether it was a coach or as a PE teacher who just constantly gave them positive feedback and just constantly believed in them. And that's almost always why they credit their professional status is because they had that, they had that backbone. And I've seen it so many times with talented kids who you, who you think they must make it. There's no way that they're not going to make it. And then you, you look a little bit into their, the surroundings and you see they haven't got that. They don't have that person fighting in their corner. And when it comes to the crunch moments, when it comes to the clutch moments, they fold. And so, and so you get players who maybe and often were never the most talented in their age group. They are the ones that go professional because they just dig and dig and dig and dig. And the ones who were the best at under nine, the best at under 15, they get to U17 and then it's it's gone. It's not there because they never they didn't build the skill set around them. They didn't have that person who who fought for them. So um, I understand it from a professional point of view as a coach. I've been put under pressure regularly in my roles to win, um, and often environments where they say, "Oh, winning is not important," but then they're screaming and shouting at the side, and then they they want to review you after a game and say, "Well, why did you lose that game?" You have to be brave. I think. I mean, I, I the the coaches that I respect step up when they lose, and they and they take it on a chin, and they and they and they protect their players. They don't throw them under the bus and say, "Oh, well, I said this," but they went and did their own thing. That's the job. You get paid money to protect your players. Maybe you have a, a, an individual personal conversation with them, and you say, "Today, I don't think you you have performed to the level you could. I think you could have done more." But I think it, when it's publicly and in terms of, of this results conversation, the later you can wait, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Like, yeah. Really, really interesting discussion with you, Harry. Thank you so much for joining me. If somebody maybe watching in future or on the podcast wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? So LinkedIn, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of LinkedIn. And again, for, for budding coaches, they did not have that when I first started, like it, or, or I didn't know how to use it. Maybe let's put it like that. So um, right now, you can reach out to anybody in the world. You can ask some questions. I would be very surprised if anybody who's reached out to, on to, on to me on LinkedIn didn't get response. I love chatting to people. I love trying to to help them on their journey, trying to help them through some of the mistakes that I made, some of the struggles that I had to endure. If I can advise them how to. To, to go around that, alleviate it, then then I love sharing. So find me on LinkedIn, um, Harry Varley, and then Facebook as well. If, if you're not on LinkedIn, then Harry G. Varley on Facebook. Uh, always happy to, to chat about football. And for those of you listening to the podcast, that's Harry, the letter G, and then Varley, V-A-R-L-E-Y. Well, Harry, once again, thank you so much for, for joining us. And of course, if you haven't yet subscribed to Facebook, YouTube, wherever, be sure to do so because each and every week we're offering an interview with somebody associated with sports and coaching. But on behalf of myself, Tim Baggers, and of course, Harry Barley, thank you so much for watching. Thank you.